Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. My name is George Mello, and this week... I'm in conversation with Griselda Pollock, Professor of the Social and Critical Histories of Art at the University of Leeds. I met Griselda to talk about her recent book, Charlotte Salomon and the Theatre of Memory, the first sustained art historical analysis of the work of this major 20th century German Jewish artist, whose work remained unknown for decades after her death at the hands of the Nazis. The Stark Facts Salomon was born in Berlin in 1917. Her mother committed suicide when Charlotte was eight. She trained in illustration at the Art Academy in Berlin, one of a tiny number of Jewish students admitted. She specialised in illustrating German fairy tales and folk tales. In 1938, she fled Germany alone and joined her grandparents in exile in the south of France. There, her grandmother jumped to her death from a window in 1940, the same year Salomon and her grandfather were interned by the French authorities in a concentration camp in the Pyrenees. In the chaotic conditions after the German invasion of France, they were released from the camp, and in hiding between late 1940 and early 1942, Charlotte Salomon made the huge, complex, multi-layered artwork that is Leben, oder Theater, life or theatre, in an extraordinary burst of sustained creative activity. In 1943, Salomon was re-arrested and deported to Auschwitz, where she was murdered on the 10th of October, five months pregnant, aged 26. What to make of life or theatre? It's a single work comprising nearly 800 paintings, 330 of them with transparent overlays, carrying dialogue or commentary that often play with the visual image of words. They also suggest melodies for the scenes. Something wildly unusual, Salomon herself called the work. Griselda Pollock characterises it as challenging, enigmatic and demanding. Previous commentators have often been strongly tempted to reduce the work to autobiography. She doesn't have to be an ideal or nice or lovable or bearable person she has to be an honest one. And that's what I think the work is about, which is, what is authenticity? How is it to face both 
the complexity and compromised nature of the world in which we live and then the horror of its politics and to know that you yourself are compromised. Life, or theatre, was never exhibited or even seen by anyone during Zalomon's lifetime. In early 1943, she had wrapped her paintings in large packages and handed them over for safekeeping, reportedly saying, this is my whole life. But it was not exhibited until 1961 in Amsterdam. Art historical interest grew from the 1990s. There was a big show in London in 1998 at the Royal Academy, an exhibition which travelled to North America. In recent years, Zalomon's work has inspired artists, playwrights, filmmakers, opera composers, dancers, poets, performance artists, novelists, as well as historians, literary scholars, feminist scholars, scholars of Jewish studies, life narratives, autobiography, and Holocaust studies. And last year, there was an exhibition marking the centenary of Zalomon's birth, showing all 784 paintings for the first time at the Jewish Historical Museum Amsterdam. The question of what to make of life or theatre has preoccupied Griselda Pollock for decades. So when I met her, I began by asking her to tell me about her first encounter with the work. When I was in Belgium visiting the curator Catherine de Seger, who was preparing an exhibition called Inside the Visible, an elliptical traverse of 20th century art. And she was bringing together artists who had been for reasons of exile or political persecution or generally just because women are ignored in things or who'd been working in slightly marginal or hybrid forms that therefore not become part of the main story of modern art. And amongst those, she said, have you seen this work of Charlotte Zalaman? And she had the big book that had come out in 1981 And I looked through it and I thought, this is my destiny. I have now found the artist I want to really work on. I must work on her. And yet when we art historians do that, we have a slightly kind of cannibalistic sense, you know, oh, this means something to me. And it took me a long time to say, I don't know what I'm seeing. I don't understand what this work is. How could someone create this in one year or maybe the most 18 months? What circumstances can a 25-year-old artist produce something which is so extraordinary in terms of the range of visualities, the layering of the visual images with texts, the layering of those with music, the evocation of a knowledge of, of popular culture, Weimar culture, the soundscape of Nazism, and then above all, the transformation of silent into sound and then music, color cinema. How could you encompass that? This is not someone who'd spent years and years and years and years developing an art practice. It just is in a one rush. And that posed huge art historical questions. You know, Van Gogh, let me compare. He only was an artist for 10 years. In 10 years, he wrote, painted something like 850 paintings, about 1,500 drawings, right? But we have now over a 1,000 paintings produced in probably under one year. So I felt immediately thrilled, as most people who come across this work. I thought, why didn't I know about this artist? And what on earth would do justice to her? And did you feel on that initial encounter that you could begin to situate her within some sort of art historical framework? Or did you find the work 
strongly resistant to that? And was that part of the attraction and fascination? You can't fit it into any art historical frameworks because the art historical frameworks we have do not fit women into them at all. That's my basic argument from since the 1980s, which is that the, the dominant forms of art history exclude everything that makes the work that women produce fascinating to me. That is to say, they both belong in any kind of formal stylistic history, but there is other material going on, other relationships that require different models. So since I'd spent the previous year, since the 1970s, trying to develop models for approaching the complexity of artists who work inside and on the margins, within and against the grain of what are these dominant cultural forms that the museums and the art historians have canonized, I felt this was going to require everything that I had ever thought about or tried to work out. But on the other hand, the danger was, was that I would simply apply to it, in a sense, the, the, the counter methodologies that we had developed in feminist art history. And then I would appropriate her for what we already knew, rather than saying, here is something that defies our categories and a new structure will have to be built specifically through studying it in order to study it. I think the word you use in the book is short-changing. You want to avoid short-changing mm -hmm. life or theatre. So can you say something about your methodology, how you went about ensuring that you didn't shortchange it? I mean, it's been a, a project that has, has lasted mm -hmm. well over a decade, hasn't it? Trying to avoid shortchanging Charlotte Solomon involved three things. One is, were there any comparable works? Were there any other places I could go to find something that would give it a resonance, not be compared to or derived from, but a resonance. So there was Irma Stern, the Paradise Journal from South Africa. There was Frida Kahlo did a, an illustrated diary. There was Elsa Lasker Schuler. I could begin to do that. But in each case, they weren't appropriate. And there was elements, but that wasn't enough. So the other way was to say, I simply have to approach this work as if I do not know anything. And you have to start with description. And I always say this to my students. These works are so much more complicated and so much, in a sense, cleverer than anything you are. If you actually abandon your will to enfold them in your pre-existing structures or habits or conventions, you start and you ask, what am I looking at? And if you start with a description, so where does it begin? How is it structured? Why does this follow on from that? Why are there layers of this? Why are there pencil and pen? Why is there music? Why are there three parts? Why does it end where it ends? What possible relationships can I trace backwards and forwards if I abandon the predominant biographical reading and narrative reading and ask myself, what is this doing and why did it need to be done and address those questions to actually the, the, the straight evidence. So once I found that methodology that I would just start with looking and describing and of course 
if you are an experienced art historian, as you look and describe, you think, oh, you know, she's seen Friedrich. Of course she's seen Caspar David Friedrich. That's the biggest collection of work in the National Gallery. Oh, you know, were there monk exhibitions that she could have seen? Oh, right, Kader Kulovitz is part of that. You begin to thicken it. Then you begin to look at the cinema. What cinema? Because there's one little painting in which she goes to the movies as a, a schoolgirl. So she goes to see Mädchen in Uniform, which is this extraordinary film by Leontine Sagan, which is about a boarding school, and it's based on a, a passionate love affair between a student and a teacher in the midst of this school, which is training the wives of the Prussian military. So I don't think she's... You know, she's has got a teenage crush on, on, on her stepmother. You know, that is one of the kind of normal experiences of adolescence. But then I asked that question, okay, if I don't think this is a teenage crush, what could I bring into bear to understand the sense of passion which creates these incredibly beautiful images of this stepmother singer? So that then took me to the work of Bracha Ettinger, who is a, working on the sort of new ways of understanding what the image of a woman means for a younger woman in the process of, of exploration and becoming a, a grown-up. Women do study what it is to become a woman. I mean, girls do. So this took me into another kind of area. So the minute you just ask yourself questions and look, you find doors open into areas of possible, what I'm calling resonance, that will enable you not to answer what this work is, but to thicken this very thin line that you seem to have in front of you and enrich it with all these possible layers of its psychological subtlety, its art historical knowledge, its reasons for evoking the culture of popular culture or music. And then looking at the fact that when she presents it, she has a title page as if it's a book, she has a playbill as if it's a play. She has a memorial page as if this is, you know, a book of the dead, a memorial part of the tradition of Jewish tradition. And then two pages of a preface signed as if you were signing a book. So it's clear I was never going to answer what it is. And I don't have an answer because it's she didn't have an answer. And that then gave me the possibility of studying it as a multitude of different elements held together by its question marks. I'm fascinated by the musical element, mm -hmm. the textual element too. And I wondered if you could say something about how the music, the references to music, operate within the wider scheme of the work and what questions that poses for experiencing the work. Is there such a thing as a an ideal circumstance in which to experience a work which is intrinsically multidimensional. Okay, the music is very important and fortunately more musicological scholars than I have identified all of the different elements and identified whether they were recordings at the time and how they fit into this picture of Weimar and Nazi Germany. Now, on the overlays it says nach der Melodie, to the melody, as if we are to imagine ourselves hearing these melodies. Now, in some cases, these are almost like Wagnerian leitmotifs. 
So there is a particular piece of Weber's opera Die Freischutz for Franziska Knarre Kahn, the mother figure. There are other ones associated with the grandmother, which are more a part of German folk culture. Okay, and then we have Bach associated with um, the stepmother figure. So are these Wagnerian leitmotifs, or are they ways in which the music is supplementing the kind of way she is imagining her complex artwork, which is to say that these are not members of her family, that she's given them names, and she's given them musical signatures so that they will operate simultaneously as types, mother, stepmother, singing teacher, father, monster, and also that these will be colored by sound. So I personally don't think it's a matter of our hearing them in our head. I think she hummed, as she, we are told, as she made them, and she says at the very beginning that she started with music and then she began to find that these pictures corresponded with music and the more she put them together, the more in a way she could reinvoke the world. So I think music is part of the theatre of memory. I think it's a kind of memoryscape and it therefore adds a deeply affective dimension, not a specific operatic dimension, but an affect dimension. So when I've done lectures and tried to indicate this question of sound, it's been very important to play the music, but not in relation to an image, but to make people feel what Orfeo's Lament in Gluck does to you, or what the very slow ceremonial anguish of the Bach, Bist du mein mio, if you're with me, gladly will I go to my rest. These are all about death, right? So there's, an, there's then it becomes a challenge. The music is cluing me in to a kind of level of what this work is about indirectly, and these are associated with individual, not persons or characters, but situations. Salomon's work was unknown until the 1960s, and its, its coming to a position of visibility coincided with the publication, or the, roughly around the same time as the publication of the Diary of Anne Frank, the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, Hannah Arendt writing about that. What were the implications of those simultaneous events for the way in which Salomon's work was first presented received, talked about, written about, published? That's a very difficult question because it is um, my work that has drawn attention to that range of coincidences. Now, the people at the Jewish Historical Museum, Judith Bellinfante and Eva Ornstein, who were given the task in 1971 of receiving the donation from the family and working out what it was because when it was first received, no one knew what it was. So they took all the pictures out and they found all these pictures. But the actual order, the fact that there was an order wasn't un was unknown. So Judith Bellinfante and Eva Ornstein were the first to spend six weeks laying out the entire work, finding overlays which had painting numbers and putting them back together and establishing that there was a, 
a prologue, a main part, and an epilogue, and what the sequencing was. So that was done in 1971, but in 1961, when the work was first exhibited, they had just selected works and they showed other paintings and drawings by Charlotte Solomon that had been lent to them by this American who had bought work from her when she was living in the south of France. So, as of 1961, it was not clear what people were seeing, but they were enchanted by the images and particularly enchanted by some of the narrative images that form mostly part of the um, prologue. So, it is part of my research, in a sense, this kind of question of thickening the context, to ask myself to what extent was the immediate reception of Charlotte Zalman as a victim of the Holocaust rather than as a painter of modern art, conditional on this powerful moment because until the early 1960s and particularly the Eichmann trial, the question, there wasn't such a thing as a Holocaust. People talked about Nazi atrocities, they talked about concentration camps, but the specificity of the assault on European Jewry had not been spelt out. And it was the Eichmann trial in April 1961, which is the first time a systematic story starting in 1933 had been laid out by documentation and witnessing. So that is incredibly important. It's the first creation of the narrative of 33 to 45, as opposed to thinking that in the midst of World War II, incidentally, the Nazis killed all the Jews. That's a really important element of it. But secondly, the role of Anna Frank is very important because in one hand, how does one young child become the acceptable and bearable way to confront the murder of a million children or six million people? So there's a lot of interesting questions about the feminization of the Holocaust or the infantilization of it and this idea of the comfort brought to us by the voice that defies her destiny and leaves us this wonderful legacy. So I don't think the people who set up the exhibition in 61 or even Jewish had any intention of, in a sense, colouring Charlotte Zalman only with the legacy of the Holocaust, but it's over-determined in that instance. And the fact that the first publication in 1963 was undertaken by Ruth Kliegmann and the Kurt Wolf publishers, Kurt and Helen Wolf, all of whom were escapees from Europe who had survived and found themselves wanting to bring to European attention the specific experience of the Jewish suffering. And if you recall, I mean, that Primo Levi's book was published in '47, just as much as Anna Frank's diary, and hardly taken up. It was only in 58 it's translated and only in the early 60s that we start thinking about it. So she hits cultural memory at a point when this is just beginning, this question of Holocaust memory. And since then she has been multiply appropriated by filmmakers, an opera composer, novelists, in all sorts of ways. None of which it seems from the book have really done her a great service. What these appropriations do is appropriate out of her work the historical person Charlotte Zalaman. 
Now we know Charlotte de Salomon was probably very depressed, very quiet, very mousy, very withdrawn. Alfred Wolfson said she was the least responsive of any of the people he worked with trying to bring them out of themselves. And then we get this work which is so sharp, so full of sardonic humour, so cruel in its reading of the complicity and compromises and indeed crimes of adults. You can't match the two by turning this Lebanon theatre into a source for a biographical film. But what happens is people identify with Charlotte Zolomon. The extreme form is David Fokino, this French author who thinks she is his other self, to continuous stories of, I mean, of, of artists, of playwrights, of dramatists, and they turn it into a story deriving their mise-en-scene from the paintings and thus erasing the central fact. She chose to paint. She chose to compose on a flat surface using colours, what she calls, there was, you know, the sun, a paintbrush, palette and you. That's the person she's addressing this work to. And that's the point. We miss, we lose that. So I feel that it's inevitable that the extraordinariness of this young woman's life and death pierces us and we should be pierced by it but not to the extent that we then appropriate her as our own avatar so in all of the things that people make from ballets to theatres to plays they project themselves into her and my position is she is radically unknowable to me and rather like Jacqueline Rose I, I've argued she doesn't have to be an ideal or nice or lovable or bearable person she has to be an honest one and that's what I think the work is about which is what is authenticity how is it to face both the complexity and compromised nature of the world in which we live and then the horror of its politics and to know that you yourself are compromised. So much of these stories, I think, end up with ballets, dances, plays, which either overemphasize the, the tragedy, they all end with her death, but Labour Theater didn't end with her death. It ended with her saying, I choose not to die. And the fact that she was murdered is the historical catastrophe we have to witness, but we can't collapse it with her as an artist. In your mind, is there an ideal way of presenting the work? No, I think the work absolutely defeats us because... The model of exhibition is either one painting by one painting, or in 1998 they tried clustering them and then you impose your aesthetic on which ones you cluster. Now, as of 2017, Jewish Historical Museum in Amsterdam owns this work and they have mounted their centenary exhibition. And the curator felt that she could no longer make a selection. She wanted to show the whole work for the very first time in its history, the entire 769 plus the 15 um, preliminary pages are on show. This means that she's had to cluster them. Some on, on linear forms on the walls, some 
on tables in three or four rows, some in sequences. So she's made an interpretation, which I think is, is legitimate, that there are internal sequences that are like so many sentences of a paragraph. And I found confirmation of some of my sequencing or my, my groupings in that. But then these are set amidst, you know, so many images. So people are overwhelmed. You know, how can you look at 769 paintings in one room in this massive way and, and get them? I think art historical interpretation of them helps because I can put lots of them in collectively and out of sequence. I can do some sequencing. I can situate them in relation to comparative material. I can expand the historical material. So I think exhibition is always going to be difficult. And then it's always difficult because they frame it. So even this exhibition in Amsterdam, which is meant to be framed as a chance to have this impact of this massive artwork all in one go, is framed by photographs set against paintings of the characters. So it completely conflates the historical person and these characters, so denying it its function as a fiction, as a sort of speculative fiction that she's creating, and also denying the status of the photographs, because there are only photographs of some of them. Now, if your entire world has been destroyed by appropriation and forced exile from the Nazis, the fact that any photographs exist means that when people escape, they escape with photographs. They, they take these with them. There are, we know there are people carried photographs into Auschwitz, and therefore these have a completely different status. They're not documentary. And thirdly, what is so fascinating to me is there is no photograph of Charlotte Zalman's mother in all this documentation of the sort of publicity photographs of the great Paula Lindberg, who was a, a diva, Catherine Ferrier of her time. There are passport photographs, there are holiday snaps, there are various kinds of things that form this little family album, which I discuss in the final chapter of the book. But it just jumped out at me. There is no image of her mother, and yet she paints this woman's face over and over again, she enters into her world. Now, that indicates this sense of, again, of, of what is absent, what is she doing, what does it mean to evoke your mother? And this takes us from your question, but into another area, which is a major area of my research, which is about the nature of bereavement and the nature of maternal loss. And this is a big subject that many of us have turned to and looked at because to be bereaved is to be terminally sentenced to a life other than the one you were going to live. A child who loses their mother will never know who they were going to be because they are precipitated into adulthood at a time when they are emotionally unable to live that and that you will therefore always live this double life that you appear to pass as an adult but you've been arrested at 7 or 12 or 15 or 21, some part of you is transformed. And I, do, I think we underestimate that. So these photographs have prompted me to avoid the notion that these are clues. So here's Paula Lindbergh, here's her painting, 
this is who it is. It's not. She's exploring mothers, grandmothers, daughters, fathers. And then the key other figure she that is brought in is a survivor of the First World War. So to that generation in the 30s, the aura around those who'd been in the trenches and had come through that horror was what we now sort of surround the very few who survived who were in Auschwitz, the, the Holocaust survivors. That was the biggest catastrophe and these people bearing that memory. So I oppose these exhibitions that start you saying, this is about these people, because it doesn't endow the images that we have with their own historical and, in a sense, pathetic affectivity as to why there's a family album or what they have function they had in the past. And who, then, are the people behind that? A, a Jewish man who survives the First World War reminds us that you know German Jews fought for Germany in the war. And one of the reasons, this is, by the way, that one of the reasons that Charlotte Solomon was allowed into art school was that her father had been an Amish surgeon. Now, my aunt, this is by the way, my aunt was um, a surgeon during partition in India. And so unbelievably horrific were the, what she witnessed that she took her own life in the face of the horror that she witnessed in trying to save people from this these mutual massacres. So I say to myself, what did Albert Salomon witness? Now, we know from many of the men who came back from the First World War, there was no recognition of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Many people report their fathers were silent, or these men never spoke. There was no language to speak. So any photograph of Albert Salomon has to register that he was from a not very well-to-do family. He desperately wanted to be a doctor. He saw the bodies that had been destroyed by the first industrial war, as did her, her mother, who was a nurse. Now, that carries over into questions I would need to ask about the kind of psychological world of the actual Charlotte Zalman. Those photographs are not simply to identify, these are real people, she's telling a story about real people. Because you miss anything about a man who was a surgeon in the First World War, a man who lay in the trenches having to pretend to be dead so that he wouldn't be, you know, stabbed to death with a bayonet as they went round to kill off the survivors. These are horrors that are real and we've lost them if we just make it about them. So that's my objection to the ways in which you do it and I would much rather exhibit it with even a space where you could just make people pause and, uh, and you know, what does it mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And these images then become indexical, not of a person, but an experience, which is what Charlotte Salomon, you know, she grew up in that household with a nurse and a doctor parents who had seen what, you know, if you show any of the images. And the other thing, of course, we forget that because of those terrible, terrible injuries, the streets of Berlin were full of mutilated men, beggars on carts, people with no hands, people with faces heart, you know, reconstructed by um, prostheses because they were so mutilated. And I think we lose that 
in this very simple way of focusing on a tragic young woman and her biography. So I think my ideal exhibition would be much more comparative, but I don't know if you can, except in a book form, ask people, pause, think about this, let me just, you know, so in the, the book I, you know, I, I use Virginia Woolf's story about how her mother obsessed her until she was 40. We have Louise Bourgeois, who lost her mother at 21, you know, who's obsessed by her mother until she's, you know, in her 90s. She's making pieces saying, Maman. Uh, Chantal Ackerman, whose whole creative film life is based on her mother living, but her mother having lost her mother. So I pause people, like your musical question. I want people to pause. I don't want them to be given stories. You talked at the beginning about that initial sense of encountering the work back in the early 90s and feeling a sense of sort of destiny or something. Is there a sense in which this book is the culmination of preoccupations, ideas, theories that you've worked on throughout the entirety of your career? I do think the book is a culmination, and I have written an appendix in the book which tracked very carefully the events and processes, the times I spoke about this work as I tracked my way to feeling able to start the first book and then to reject it, the second book, and reject it, and finally to be able to complete it. There are three elements, I think, that I've worked on. One, obviously, I've dedicated my life to correcting the misapprehension that women have contributed nothing to culture, and particularly the misapprehension that women have not played a major role in the co-creation of modern art and now contemporary art. So encountering Charlotte Zalman placed her immediately in my area, except she's not a forgotten artist. She's a nameless artist, an artist who made work in exceptional isolation, absolutely outside of the realms of the art world, although she was a trained artist. And that presented a completely different challenge from simply reconfiguring art history to accommodate what I call inscriptions in of and from the feminine, the difference of women as they experience modernity and um, modern art. Then, of course, her being a German-Jewish artist required me to understand not merely the history of the Holocaust, which is one of the major areas of cult the cultural memory of the Holocaust that I've researched, but Jewish experience of modernity, which is this complicated moment of the promise of participation and acculturation and at the same time, the perpetual presence of what Sigmund Bauman calls the, the, the dagger of racism, because she, I mean, anti-Semitism is an official discourse in German universities from the 1890s onwards, let alone this vicious anti-Semitism that comes associated with Nazism. These are very profound experiences of being in and out, separated by something so intangible, because it's not physical colour, it's not physical looks, you know, she looked like me, blonde, blue-eyed and all the rest of it. How do you experience this uh, force of this? At the same time, we have so much of modern cultural theory is articulated by people experiencing the belonging to the modern, whether it's Walter Benjamin, Sigmund Freud and others. So that element of it is there. And then there's the, the, the 
long-term engagement that I have with certain arguments with art history, and one of the biggest arguments is, for instance, over the interpretation of Van Gogh. So I wrote my, my PhD on Van Gogh, and nobody would publish it because they didn't want this, what I call the case against Van Gogh in quotation marks, the case against the mythology, the case against the legend of the suffering artist. Van Gogh has taught me lots of things because he's basically an autodidact amateur. It becomes possible to be an autodidact amateur on the edges of modernist art because of curious you know, anti-academic developments. And the notion that an artist is interesting in their, should we say, eccentricity, being eccentric away from the center, um, and yet we have to read how they find a place because they come at it from the margins. So I think this is the distillation of everything that I've done in terms of feminist studies, modern Jewish studies, the study of the cultural memory of the Holocaust, but also this set of arguments with what art history has not been allowing us to ask questions about if it's simply the narrative of great white men. I was talking to Griselda Pollock about her book, Charlotta Salomon and the Theatre of Memory. It's available from Yale University Press in hardback, richly illustrated in colour and black and white throughout. And, as I hope this interview has shown, it's a very good way in to approaching Charlotte Zalomon's work. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any of the interviews you might have missed. And if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. You'll also find the programme on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>